every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a post-mortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. Uh, my name's Paul, I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. This week we've made it to Buffy episodes 504 Out of My Mind and 505 No Place Like Home, two episodes that each feature some of the best five-word spike quotes of the entire series. I just literally just realized that as I was compiling my notes. But uh, at any rate, talking with me tonight, uh, back again um, for the first time since the beginning of season four, Stephanie Graves, uh, PhD student. Welcome. Welcome, Stephanie. Uh, Stephanie's a PhD student at Georgia State University in rhetoric and composition. My goodness. Um, (laughs) That's how I feel about it, too. She's the winner of the 2014 Mr. Pointy Award. And let me see if I can get all this right. So I want you to fact check me here. Uh, contributor to the recently released Joss Whedon versus the horror tradition, the production of genre of, I said the production of genre of Buffy. That should be the production of genre in Buffy and beyond, right? <laughs> yes. Okay, man. Uh, I've done this before. Uh, <laughs> and the forthcoming transmediating the Whedon versus essays on text, paratext and metatext. Yes. Okay, man. <laughs> words are hard i don't know how you people do it okay well we really like complex titles um <laughs> i see yeah. that i see that <laughs> so, it's it's a, it's a trope well um i i will be adding both of those to my ever-expanding uh library graphic or my list of of uh texts to include in the show notes so um is there anything else i need to <laughs> need to add how many yeah. other books have you got that's plenty. I, you know, it's a never ending sort of process, but I mean, it's uh, good. It's good. Those are my, those are my Buffy centric works. 20, in, 20 plus I, years later. And there is still stuff to write about. So. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, um, all right. Well, has anything exciting happened in the, I don't even know how long it's been a couple months, maybe since the last time we recorded. <sighs> I mean, it doesn't sound like it. That sigh was <laughs> didn't imply that there's been a lot of excitement. Not a whole lot. Uh, I survived the semester. That's pretty exciting. Okay. But, That's you know, <laughs> That's good. Um, just trying to keep it on the side of the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we are recording from a cemetery, so should anything happen, we're in the right place. Excellent. Uh, all right, well, let me get the spoiler warning out of the way, and then we'll get right into these episodes. Uh, if for some reason you are new to this podcast, uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. 
uh, which means there will be spoilers. There are going to be a lot of spoilers, so I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and ideally Angel the series all the way through at least once, go ahead and press pause, go do that, come back and find us as soon as you're ready. Uh, we'll still be here. With all of that business out of the way, Stephanie, if you're ready, let's go to work. Absolutely. All right, so let's start off with uh, episode 504, Out of My Mind. What do you think about this one? Um, I really like this episode. Uh, and as I was rewatching it before the podcast, um, I was thinking about how the episode titles in Buffy are often so great, mm-hmm. um, particularly how they are so polysemous. It's um, like out of my mind. Really, just that phrase has several echoes throughout the episode itself. Um, and so I thought it was really a nice, I, I like this episode. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's one of those ones that's putting a lot of stuff in motion for the rest of the season. So it's a lot of kind of, um, foundation laying for where season five goes, but overall, I think it's an enjoyable episode. It's one that I forgot how much I liked. Yeah. I'd forgotten how much of the stuff. Uh, that I associate with season five happened in actually these two episodes. There, there, there are moments that I remember from the season and I didn't realize that they came like in the, within the first five episodes. I feel like um, I talked a lot about how season four suffered from a pacing problem. I mean, it probably suffered. I don't know if you can hear my cat. She is in the other room, losing her fool mind. Um, (laughs) Ember, come on. Uh, it's season four had many issues, but uh, I feel like the biggest was just a pacing problem. And season five feels like pretty much right out of the gate. Uh, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of the Dracula episode, but even that episode <laughs> laid a lot of groundwork that that set the stage for a lot of stuff that's going to play through the season. And so I don't know. I just feel like season five maybe is getting off to a stronger start than season yeah. four did. And I'm excited to hear your episode about the Dracula episode since it's not out yet assuming technology doesn't mess with me uh it is scheduled at the at the time of recording it is scheduled to auto publish tomorrow night excellent (laughs) excellent yeah um and that episode i you know you kind of if you're doing a vampire show over the long term you have to deal with dracula oh yeah and my my guest in that episode was dax stokes who uh, actually has a podcast of his own the vampire historian and he's a he's got a massive collection of just vampire books in general and specifically like editions of Dracula. So he was a great guest, but anyways, we're not here to talk about Dracula. That (laughs) that boy had his time. (laughs) Um, So yeah. What did we get in this? That was so, uh, well, first of all, it's, I'm so happy to see Xander. Hey, my cat finally found me. So maybe she'll be quiet now. Uh, It's I'm so happy to see Xander sort of finally, finding his footing uh he's developing a lot in season five yeah now i i think i've commented in an earlier episode that i'm i don't remember how long that lasts (laughs) like i i think if i remember correctly season five is kind of a good season for xander and then he backpedals (laughs) or he backslides or whatever i don't know maybe i'm being unfair to xander as i as i usually am but uh, i know i know hating on xander is a a a popular pastime it, it is it, um, re- it really is it's one i don't really like participate in i mean xander is not perfect by any means but he is just sort of like an idiot teenage boy like yeah i think he does that well 
<laughs> yeah. Well, but uh, at least by this point, like we've already gone through the the he, he swore in the Dracula episode he was done being everybody's butt monkey, and <laughs> then he had the the twins episode where he he theoretically sort of united the two halves of his dueling nature, and and uh, as of this episode. We see him developing a real marketable skill. He has a talent for carpentry. And I don't know, he just seems, at the moment at least, he seems much more sort of, you know, confident and comfortable in his own skin. And it's it's a nice change of pace. And my note is, it's nice to see Xander being adult and useful. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, Which is so fascinating. I mean, I guess we'll get more of this in... Oh, no, it's this episode. I was going to say we'll get more of it in the next episode, but um, the... Hang on, <laughs> Ember, for crying out loud. I concur. Oh, my goodness. Um, one of... So I, I'm frequently a Riley defender, but uh, one of the weird things that's going on with Riley's character arc at the moment is he is struggling with feeling useless um, both of these episodes deal with uh, Buffy sort of trying to reassure him that he still has a place in her life and he is feeling also like no that's increasingly not untrue right um, so it's just it's it's so crazy to me at least I struggle sometimes uh, a lot of times okay most of the time I struggle most of the time <laughs> with uh, some of the kind of um storytelling shortcuts and detours that the series tends to take with with supporting characters um a prime example is riley at this point like he he's about to become normal like totally normal and he really struggles with that and uh, i get the purpose of like i get the reason that that story is being told but (laughs) it's just so weird that Riley, who literally who legitimately has years of military training, um, seems out of place in the Scooby gang, which features uh, Xander. Now, I, we just said that Xander is coming into his own, but still, <laughs> Xander had one Halloween of being possessed by the spirit of a soldier. Riley is a real honest-to-goodness soldier with all of the, the years of actual training, and so, I don't know... <sighs> Like I said, I get the, the the metaphor that they're going for here, but uh, it's still weird to think of Riley as being the the useless one. Yeah, and I, I think of... And maybe just because he never gets integrated into the group very well, mm-hmm. um, and, and po- probably also like fan reactions who didn't love Riley, and so they were like, oh, let's start creating an exit strategy. <laughs> <laughs> laying the groundwork for writing Riley off the show. Um, and I think the series does Riley a disservice. He's just sort of a genuine corn fed boy. And they, they write him off, uh, sort of in a truncated kind of unfair way. I think I'm thrilled to say that I agree with you on that. I don't, I don't get an awful lot of, uh, Riley sympathists on the podcast, but well, I am a, an arbiter of unpopular opinions. So, <laughs> okay, excellent. You've come to the right place. Um, speaking of uh, corn-fed good boys or whatever, we get our first appearance of Ben. <laughs> so, 
this is a total aside, but okay. Okay. Uh, I love How to Get Away with Murder. Mm-hmm. It is garbage television, and I can't stop watching it. Uh, <laughs> but it took me two seasons to finally be like, who is this guy playing Frank? And it turns out that's Dr. Ben, or almost Dr. Ben. Almost Dr. Ben. <laughs> yeah. Charlie Weber is the actor's name. I do not watch How to Get Away with Murder, so I was not aware he was in that. But that's uh, Well, that's he grows up well, and he looks nice with a beard. It's a nice beard. So, <laughs> it's. Um, I, I think he was a handsome fellow uh, in Buffy, and it's... Uh, like when he first shows up on screen, your initial thought is, oh, here's another one of that type. Like he just, he seems like Buffy's type, doesn't he? He's got pretty hair. Yeah. He's a, he's, he's a pretty boy who's seems charming and a little bit understood. I don't know. There's just, he clearly seems like in another, under other circumstances, he would be introduced as a potential interest for Buffy, but that is, yeah. that is not Ben's arc. <laughs> in the series i don't uh, that i remember i don't remember a little i don't have is there ever a moment where there's I think there's some romantic interest on both sides but then it becomes deeply complicated yeah by you know ben's alternate personality right there's something about that guy i can't put my finger on it um so all right what else did we get in this episode Joyce's condition. We've we've had hints of Joyce having some sort of issue or some sort of condition for a few episodes now, and and they're they're really starting to to come in earnest at this point. Yeah, and this like I, I've been kind of rewatching uh, season five uh, when you sent me the email that this was coming, so I was watching some of them. And as someone whose mother has had a brain tumor and been dealing with that for the last two years, mm. like this, I was like, oh, this season is really going to tear me apart. <laughs> um, especially knowing where we're going for, for season five with Joyce. So, um, but it's in like, from a perspective I did not have when I initially watched the series, um, that moment where, she looks at Dawn and she's just bewildered and says like, who are you? Mm-hmm. Um, it's so chilling. If you've seen someone whose brain is just like turned against them. Um, and like in terms of character B too, because we are still as an audience, like have no context for Dawn. <laughs> We're just like, who the hell are you? <laughs> so. Um, I've, I've been asking my guests in season five, uh, this question. So I'll, I'll ask you, did Don, does Don bother you? Did Don bother you at this point when you were first watching the show? I hate Don. Oh, even, even still now in hindsight, you still hate Don. Yeah. And it's not, it's not the actress, but like, she's literally designed for us to hate her. Like she's the annoying little sister and it kind of makes sense like narratively in terms of how they're building the season and how they're complicating Buffy's home life. Um, and part of that is hindsight, like being able to see where they're going with all of it. Um, but I mean like, and I've liked Michelle Trachtenberg and other things. Um, but the character of Dawn is just particularly obnoxious. She gets a little better later. Um, but you know, they're really trying to, play up the friction between she and Buffy initially. And, you know, she causes a lot of catastrophe. Like she's the one who has the shoplifting problem that 
makes everybody sing. Um, and you know, it's like Dawn's at the at the center of a lot of like chaos, I guess. Um, so there, I clearly am exhibiting a habit of behavior here because I I'm frequently a, a Riley defender in quotes i i'm i'm more sympathetic to riley than most people i am more sympathetic to season four than most people or at least i was before this rewatch i i would say on this favorite on on, on, say what season four is your favorite my favorite yeah wow you are the arbiter of unpopular opinions congratulations um yeah i've always stood up for season four more than just about anybody else i've ever known um on this rewatch i've been it's like I said, its pacing issues became much more apparent to me. Um, and so I'm, I still defend season four. I still don't think season four is terrible, but uh, I recognize more of its issues now. But, uh, and the, to continue that habit of me, for some reason, taking up for the underdogs of this show, I'm frequently a Dawn defender. And <laughs> well, she needs somebody to. Yeah. And uh, a lot of that is, like you said, the, she's kind of written like her purpose on the show is kind of for us to dislike her um, because we're meant to put ourselves in Buffy's position. Like we're meant to sympathize with Buffy. She's supposed to be our point of view character. And uh, she, her life is being disrupted by Don. Um, but even so, like you, you just a few minutes ago, you mentioned the fact that you feel like Riley's character was done a disservice. Just the way the character was treated by the writers on the show was kind of a disservice to that character. I would agree with that. Um, I also, I've said this before and will continue to say this. I feel they uh, do a similar disservice to Dawn because you're right. She is, the character is included into the show to serve a particular purpose and and she is serving that purpose she is annoying um but it annoys me for the wrong reasons it annoys me that she is supposed to be a 14 year old girl who is written as if she is an eight-year-old girl um uh and and that uh like they introduced early on the fact that she's supposed to be like super smart and that really goes away she uh, she behaves in super stupid ways in future episodes i don't know i feel like um I have a lot more sort of sympathy for the tragic arc of Dawn's storyline than a lot of people do. I feel like most fans were just annoyed that they introduced a young sister onto the show, which is fine. That's what she was supposed to do was be the annoying younger sister. But the writers were, I don't know, a little inconsistent and unfair in their portrayal of that character. Yeah, I do agree with that. And, and Dawn, Buffy has no patience for Dawn. And That's I think the... a lot of that has to do with Buffy having to grow up so quickly because she was the Slayer um, and not having like any idea of like normal adolescent development. And that... that's obnoxious too, because Buffy's pretty, uh, she takes a hard line with Dawn. <laughs> yes. So that's, that is uh, as much as I would say, so where I will allow the, I don't like Dawn stuff is in the way it, 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 uh, resets some of the other characters to earlier states uh specifically um i think in, i think in my last episode i said something about the fact that joyce now that they've introduced a a younger daughter um joyce has in many respects sort of reverted back to season 1 joyce where she is the <clears throat> the annoying clueless mother 
not entirely, but there, <laughs> there have just been a couple scenes where she has to interact with the two daughters where all of a sudden I was like, Oh man, I used to like in season one, I was not a fan of Joyce and I've grown so fond of Joyce. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, Joyce, you're annoying me. <laughs> uh, but particularly Buffy who I always struggle with. I have always struggled with. I am not Buffy Summer's biggest fan, uh, but sh the, her character has shown some genuine growth and, uh, introducing the annoying younger sister has in some respects taken her back to the the whiny buffy i wish i could have all my mother's attention that used to annoy me so much yeah and that's really um that's really foregrounded in no place like home yeah uh, her sort of uh, as if buffy's not the center of attention enough <laughs> right so so, but there is great stuff in this for, well, for, for a lot of the characters, but for my boy Spike, we get a lot of good stuff for Spike <laughs> and a lot of, uh, setting the stage for some terrible, terrible, tragic stuff for my boy Spike. But, um, for the moment, at least Spike gets to, to revel in his comedic, uh, his comedic foil nature. There was some great yeah. Spike stuff in this. Uh, and, and especially like the opening scene where uh, she's patrolling and and Buff and uh, Riley comes in and then uh, immediately after that Spike comes in <laughs> she's just like well I guess you know why do I, I why do I even show up yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah and I particularly like the whole I will know your blood slayer I will make your neck my chalice and drink deep and then he falls into an open grave it's a That's... lot of open graves in Sunnydale. <laughs> Well, things keep crawling out of them. They can't keep them okay. filled in, I guess. But, um, and of course, there's the whole... I mean, we, we it's already been established that Spike likes uh, passions. And here <laughs> here we find out that he enjoys Dawson's Creek as well. Yeah, which... Was, this was still in the WB? At the, no, <laughs> yes, it was yeah. still in the WB. So it was a little Crosswood Network... Uh, um, or Internetwork promotion there. Um <laughs> So, and of, of course, Spike identifies with Pacey. Yeah, a little foreshadowing. So um, this will become way more uh, foregrounded in, in uh, future episodes of this podcast as Spike's arc proceeds. Um, but uh, I have a tendency to give the writers a hard time for some of the tr their treatment of Spike as well. Uh, and <laughs> in my notes, I'm like, I said something about... Uh, Oh, where is it? I wrote uh, between Buffy's line about her dating Spike. If all she wanted was a partner with powers and Spike's clueless reaction to watching Dawson's Creek. I'm beginning to <laughs> think the writers knew what they were doing all along <laughs> because he's, yeah. of course he's got the, the, Oh, Pacey, you blind idiot. Can't you see she doesn't love you? Well, which thanks Freddie for shadowing. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I was like that. And in my notes, I'm like, that was a great line, but a little too foreshadowy for my taste. Um, <laughs> a little on the nose in retrospect. Yeah. Um, but we do get Harmony back. We get Harmony. Uh, uh, bless her. Bless bless Harmony, <laughs> um, who's convinced she's Buffy's arch nemesis. <laughs> oh, I am a villain, Spike. Hello. <laughs> I can't remember. <laughs> um, I can't remember how much more of her we get. So this is a spoiler podcast, people. Uh, so spoilers for Buffy and Angel. But uh, eventually she makes the jump over to Angel. And I can't remember how much more of her we get in Buffy. Do you know? I don't either, really. Okay. Because um, I've seen the last half of the series less than I've seen the first half. Yeah. Um, because of a sort of 
uh, emotional diminishing returns. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I can't, as I was watching this episode, for some reason I was thinking, like I had it in my head that this is the last time we see Mercedes McNabb on Buffy. And that, that that's surely not true. I, I, I don't think that's true because we're still, I think two or three seasons of Angel away from when she makes the jump over to that show. So I think we still get more of her, but. Um, but I, I just love like how she's constructed this world in which she is the protagonist. Um, and we get that kind of glimpse into sort of the, her way that she's constructed her life. Mm-hmm. Um, she's just adorable. And I love how frustrated Spike is when he's, she's not picking up on his innuendo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh will i have sex with you (laughs) sure Sure. yeah (laughs) harmony is it a sodding bread box (laughs) this is the best 20 questions game (laughs) (laughs) um so of course the the big thing that comes out of this uh and please fill in anything else in this episode that you want to talk about but the big thing at the top of the show i said each of these episodes features a fantastic five word quote from spike um the the quote from the next episode no place like home is the the famous one uh, <laughs> walk bitch <laughs> yeah but this one gives us oh god no please no <laughs> uh, which again is another thing i'd forgotten happened as early in the season as it did um <laughs> i have such a hard time keeping track of seasons five and six in particular i remember the lar- the broad strokes but i can't remember what happens where and so for some reason i thought that the whole buffy spike tragic love affair thing uh was further down the line than apparently it is well i think it really comes to a head in six obviously but um it is like the beginning of him uh you know, sort of like sympathizing with her, but being really annoyed about it. Mm-hmm. And I love the dream sequence at the end of the episode, um, which I loved his shirt. I loved the like, shirt he was wearing <laughs> in terms of like aesthetics. You get the sense that this might be a dream sequence because it's like taking place during the day. Like the crypt is really bright. Um, and, but of course you have that, that moment of him waking up in horror <laughs> because he's like, Oh, I'm in love with Buffy. Um, but what I find it really interesting about his dream sequence is in his dream, he is the one who is objectified. Um, you know, he rips his shirt off. <laughs> He's like, go ahead, stab me. Um, and it's just like, it, it's interesting. Well, it sets a precedent yeah, for the show. I mean, the show will continue to do that. And I will never, to be honest, you know, I will never complain when James Marsters loses his shirt. It's not a problem for me. <laughs> I don't. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a problem. Like I'm. I don't think I'm one of the people that eventually uh, is going to start uh, criticizing the show for the way it objectifies James Marsters. But I do remember. My memory is spotty, but I do remember that at the time this was originally airing, there there came a point where a lot of people were like, "Okay, we get it. Can you please <laughs> let James Marsters?" I think it was because of the like his convention appearances. I think it reached a point where whenever James Marsters would go to a convention, all anybody wanted him to do was like, take his shirt off or whatever. (laughs) I just remember that there was a backlash at a certain point where they were like, can we just please let the actor keep his clothes on? Mm -hmm. Do we have to? (laughs) Well, I don't think the show ever does. So it hardly (laughs) matters, but, um, and it is like a, it is a pleasant shift from the usual sort of like, typical genre objectification of women because you don't get that a lot in the oh, show. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's... Uh, uh... So it's not equal opportunity objectification, but it, it flips the script on the sort of the typical. <laughs> I mean, last last se- in season four, uh, I discussed how uncomfortable it was in uh, in Who Are You and This Year's Girl, the the Buffy Faith body swap episode. Yeah, yeah. In that episode, there was very pointed for like possibly the first time, the camera very very clearly and disturbingly objectified uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar's body because it was faith that was in her body. Right. And it's, it was such a stark contrast from anything we'd seen on the show before that it really, it was, it was super uncomfortable because the camera clearly had always done that with uh, Eliza Dishku as faith, but it never really yeah. did that with Buffy. And all of a sudden it did it with Buffy and, and, but not really Buffy, but not really Buffy, but still it was Sarah Michelle Gellar on camera. And you're like, Oh, I get it now. <laughs> like I see, <laughs> I see what the oh, camera. Oh, you're aware you're doing it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a self-conscious thing. Um, the interesting thing to me about uh, Spike's dream sequence at the end there is that the the show has been. I'm I'm gonna say the show has been subtle enough with it, but it really. It hasn't really been subtle because we've had. It's been such a such a punchline in at least two, maybe three episodes up to this point, the whole attraction b- between Buffy and Spike. We've had uh, pangs. We've had something blue. Like they're just, I think it was pangs. I don't remember. Anyways, something blue. Certainly there've been a couple examples of the two of them being a couple played as a joke. Yeah. Um, um, and, and when they, so when they introduce it here, uh, aside from those very obvious punchlines, um, there's also been, I think, a subtle undercurrent running up till now. Um, possibly that undercurrent has been, I consider it subtle because the those punchlines were so broad and obvious that it distracted me. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyways, that's been an undercurrent for long enough that when that scene starts, it's not necessarily immediately clear that it's a dream sequence. And, yeah, it and, doesn't feel unwon. Yeah, and it's not... Stop. You you could believe that it is actually happening. You could be shocked by it. You could be like, I can't believe they're doing this. But you can't really pretend that you'd be surprised if that was what was happening. Yeah, they've laid the groundwork for that for a while. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I'm I'm a Spuffy fan. So, oh yeah. yeah, I mean, all the best people are. I'm so sorry to all my <laughs> to all my Bangel listeners. I'm just taunting you. But, anyways. Um, what else do we get in this? Um, we see Willow has begun relying on magic, uh, relishing the use of magic, um, in place of simple everyday things like just using a darn flashlight. And that moment, uh, to really distills how good, particularly this episode, but throughout the series, there are these really nice moments of transition. Uh, that build kind of the comedic effect because of the contrast between one scene and another. And so she has, you know, the line where she says, well, it's better than using a flashlight like a big doofus. And we immediately cut to Buffy in the caves using a flashlight. Right. Right. (laughs) And um, so like transitions like that, I always think are played really well by the show. These two episodes, we don't get, so that scene also gives us one of the precious little 
Terra bits that we get in these two episodes. I actually can't remember how much Terra we got in Out of My Mind. I feel like that was practically the only thing. And then in No Place Like yeah. Home, in No Place She's Like Home, I think like... she literally has one scene. Yeah. But uh, at least in the in the Willow using magic, um, we see Terra visibly uncomfortable. Like Terra is the first one to recognize that Willow is perhaps being a little careless in her use. Also laying some groundwork for later sort of, uh, you know, <laughs> things that the series is going to explore. Yeah. Um, not, not always in the most subtle ways. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, one thing that I thought that this episode does really well is foreground how what Riley's problem is, is really how he's suffering from toxic masculinity, which is not a thought I would have had at the time I was watching it initially, but because our cultural conversations have shifted um, in retrospect, like that's really kind of what he's struggling with because he has the feeling that if he's not this like hyped up, aggressive, super powered guy um, and that Buffy is stronger than him, then he's less and he's, you know, not good enough. Um, so I thought that that was done really well throughout this episode. Uh, and you have that contrast with Grant when Grant shows up to be like, Hey dude, <laughs> let us yeah. fix you. Graham, I think. Graham. Yeah. Sorry, Graham. Graham. Well, I'm glad you said that you liked that because I want a counterpoint here because I, <laughs> I was just talking a minute ago about how, you know, I'm, I'm occasionally frustrated with the way with sort of the shortcuts they take with side characters and Riley is a good example. So like my thought was, and th this is, I think this is more the case. I think I was feeling this more in the next episode than in, um, out of my mind, but in both of these really, um, I, I kind of felt a little bit like the whole Riley. So the thing with Riley is Riley was Superman, but now he's just Clark Kent. <laughs> and and he's not adjusting very well because his lowest lane is actually Wonder Woman and feminism is kryptonite to his manly man parts or whatever. And I, and this metaphor is totally getting away from me. But um, I, I, I'm glad that you point out that uh, you appreciate the fact that uh, it's his him coming up against uh, toxic masculinity or him. I, I'd say confronting his own toxic mas masculinity, but I don't know how much of that he's confronting. Just he's trying to maintain it, I think. Yeah. <laughs> at a great detriment to himself and his uh, pulse rate. Which is another reason why I really like <laughs> character Riley because they do. Even though I don't necessarily, I don't deeply appreciate that they what they ultimately do with the character of Riley, um, and I I don't always appreciate the fan response to the way they treat Riley, but. Um, I do kind of like the fact that they have, I feel like the show has done a good job, a better job than a lot of fans give it credit for of showing that Riley is genuinely, honestly a good guy. He's he's had many moments where um, like Buffy's felt insecure with him uh, about various things. And he is always uh, able of saying, um, you know, I get it. You're the slayer. You, you, you think I don't get this, but I do or whatever. I just, there've been multiple examples of him actually just genuinely being 
smart and good and uh, always wanting to do the right thing, um, even when he feels like a fish out of water in this whole Scooby gang situation. Um, and yet he's also um, subject to the, he, he's also a product of toxic masculinity. I mean, he comes from the military industrial complex. How can he, how can he not be? Right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyways, so I, I have conflicted feelings on where Riley goes and, and how they tell his story, but anyways yeah yeah and and when he comes back later uh as part of whatever shadowy government installation he's now part of um i think it drives home the fact that riley is a good guy Um, yeah i can't remember i just remember that he comes back i can't remember too much about what his future appearance is like but uh well he's also like coupled up with a lady right yeah i know he he's moved on which is it's good for him but yeah good for him somebody escaped hurricane buffy <laughs> not many do uh, i sound very uncharitable about buffy and i don't mean to like i love the show and she's a great character um but she's a little selfish sometimes so hey i, guess I that's, mean that's what protagonists do right you, you don't have to you don't have to soft pedal with me um i i am always willing to talk about how i feel like buffy can be selfish she <laughs> even was... sings about it herself later in a later episode it's true yeah um, kind of self-righteous is that what she calls herself i think <laughs> and and i feel like season seven really leans into that um which is why it's my least favorite season but um mine as well, mine as well. so you have that to look forward to <laughs> yes that's a shining beacon on the hill um all right is there anything else in this episode um Um, i think we got most of it uh i do love the moment where giles who's you know building the magic box um shows her the training room he's put together for her and how touched she is um i thought that was a really nice moment uh we never get enough giles i I wish there was a spinoff just about giles Oh man, I talk on so many of these episodes. I talk about the the spinoffs or or uh, tie-ins that I that could have been that I wish we had had. Um, <laughs> and the Ripper one is one of the the big ones. Yeah, but uh, I I I liked how uh, sort of flabbergasted she was that he put together such a nice space for her. Um, so it was, it was a nice moment. The danger room, as Riley will go on to call it. <laughs> He's just jealous. He wants to use it. Yeah. So. Um, of course, that sh- that room is never showcased better than in the musical episode uh, <laughs> while they're singing in it. It's true. Very true. Um, I've, I forgot to mention before we get out of this episode, I just have to say that uh, it drives me crazy the way I've seen people complain that Spike uh, is conscious while they're doing the brain surgery. And <laughs> I feel like that is a thing. Like, uh, it creeps me out too, but I'm almost positive that that is a, that's a real thing. I've, I've seen like, not in person, but I've seen like on TV or in videos I've seen. Um, During the brain surgeries I've performed. Yeah, um. exactly. I mean, when I do it, they're conscious, but um, because the, they can do just a local anesthetic. And a lot of times a brain surgery involves their, their testing for response or whatever. So anyways, right. it it's not that uncommon for the patient to actually be remain conscious during brain surgery so that's not my issue the thing that drove me crazy about that scene is that james marsters is just throwing his head all over the place 
Like every time he reacts to something that some stupid thing Harmony says, he like turns his head or tries to look up over his shoulder. And I'm like, oh, for hold your head still, man. Which which makes you wonder like how powerful are vampire regenerative traits? Well, I mean <laughs> his hair his hair wasn't even messed up after the surgery, so that's how yeah. powerful they're. Um, poor 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 Spike just cannot get rid of the chip. Mm. Um, so yeah. Uh, it's a nice moment where he attacks Buffy thinking he's finally released and then uh, can't bite her. <laughs> this can't possibly be the first time uh, I've thought of this. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure many, many, many people have already discussed this, but it occurred to me in that scene that as this season is laying the groundwork for the, the sort of revelation that the Slayer power has demonic roots, um, it was interesting to me that Spike can't like, like his chip reacts when he attacks Buffy. And I feel like as until I, as I'm saying this, that gets addressed, doesn't it? Yeah. Until okay. she comes back wrong. Okay. All right. Um, I feel like this is a discussion that happens later, either in this season or in six. So I suppose we'll come yeah, back I to it. A, I think it's an immediate precursor to them banging. <laughs> okay, of course, it would have to be considering how that goes. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's the chemistry between the two of them. So. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no place like home, uh, which introduces us to. She's not actually named in this episode. She's just called the Beast and the Abomination, but. Which. I, I now, in retrospect, wonder how uh, big a Buffy fan Jermaine Clement and Taika Waititi are, since that's also what uh, the girlfriend is called and what we do in Shadows. In, the Beast. <laughs> in the... Are you talking about the movie or the series? The, the film, yeah. Okay, yeah. See, I don't... I, I, I'm ashamed to say I don't remember the film well enough. I am... I'm eyes deep in the TV series, which I am loving every single episode of, but I don't remember the movie well enough to have to remember that reference. <laughs> um, it's the, the, the ex-girlfriend who is like presiding over the werewolf or uh, the vampire ball or whatever. Okay. Okay. Um, okay. But it's just like the beast. Um, and I think he also refers to her as an abomination. So it's just like, Huh, I wonder if they've seen season five of Buffy. <laughs> well, I will tell you. Are you watching the TV show? I've seen that pilot. I haven't seen anything beyond that yet. I love it. I just have not had time. <laughs> okay. Well, then I won't I won't reveal a spoiler from one of the not this most recent recent episode, but the one before. Um, I did hear there is a particular Buffy verse tie-in. There, there is a cameo. There is, there is an, an actor who makes a cameo for a very specific reason, and it is related to Buffy. And so, yes, <laughs> I think it's fair to assume that uh, that Taika Waititi and or Jemaine Clement are <laughs> Buffy fans. Well, I mean, obviously, because they're cool. So. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, so we have to we have to say some words about Giles and his wizard outfit because that's just something special. Okay, my note in all caps about that is did they pay extra to get Anthony Stewart head into that costume? <laughs> so I, I want to know if he got hazard pay or something. <laughs> my favorite thing about that scene is just the way the scene plays out. It's like neither one of <laughs> neither one of the characters says a word. 
there's not even any like Buffy doesn't even roll her eyes or anything. She just <laughs> just sort of a stares. Stare. <laughs> she just stares at him for for like three or four beats until he just sheepishly takes it off and walks <laughs> and away. And then when Willow shows up, she's like, "Where's the costume?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good stuff. You know, Willow, bless her, is the queen of questionable fashion choices. <laughs> I mean, I will. We haven't gotten there yet, viewers. Or listeners, but uh, in season, I'm pretty sure it's in season six, uh, is the most hideous thing that Willow will ever wear. And I refer to it as her her Elmo skin sweater or something <laughs> like that. It literally looks like she skinned a Muppet to wear it. Yeah, she um, and, and I was actually thinking as I was watching these, I was like, you know, this I think it aired in 2000. Uh, and like the first few seasons are like the fashion is very 90s, like super dated. And in this episode, I was like, you know, they're really like kind of dressed in a modern way. Like it doesn't feel so dated in terms of costuming until Willow walks on the screen. <laughs> She's just the sweaters that they find for her. I don't know where they unearth them, but it's amazing. Now, to be fair, yeah, her fashion, her fashion is uh, questionable at best, but to be fair, I genuinely love the like the long, sort of fringed jacket that she wears every once in a while. I think we see her wear it a few times, or or maybe it's a couple different versions of the same thing. But yeah, when she's channeling her her inner Stevie Nicks. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I I truly love that that jacket. I wish she would wear it more often. But yeah, and she's got like a couple of long flowy dresses I like, but mm-hmm. her sweater collection is something else. <laughs> She she was damaged by Cordelia's early swipe at her. The softer side of Sears. Yeah, yeah. She's been struggling to get past that ever since. So she refuses to wear uh, sweaters that could be considered um, bland. I guess. <laughs> well, you do you, honey. You do you. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, yeah, the the beast, the abomination, who we will eventually come to know and love as glory uh claire kramer makes her first appearance here and uh thank the goddess because she is a delight (laughs) um i and again like i feel like i don't know maybe you just come and i'm a huge like nostalgia sort of curator (laughs) for myself uh but when i was rewatching this the scene where glory's torturing uh well, the, really the monk, um, but she's like, you know, freaking out, and losing it. Mm-hmm. She, I was like, wow, this is exactly the scene from The Craft, like where Nancy loses it um, and is like shaking her head around and pulling her hair. Um, I was just like, wow, I never caught that before. But maybe it's just because I've rewatched The Craft obsessively since my teen years. Now I see it. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't caught that. I do like The Craft, but I haven't seen it in a long time. Um, but her madness, uh, reminds me so much of Nancy. It's just that kind of like mania that is barely under the surface of this, like kind of beautiful, dangerous package. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was an interesting sort of visual. It, it, It actually seems like a deliberate visual reference, the way that the scene is edited. Uh, about the whole mania thing and the, the kind of, I don't know, the, mental health aspects of this storyline 
I there's no question in my mind that there are countless papers and essays that have been written on the subject of of how the show in general and this storyline in particular kind of deal with mental health and sanity and all that. But um, I don't know what I mean, you just compared it to the, a scene from uh, the craft. But how do you feel about the who will eventually learn is the mad god glory like what uh i specifically i'm thinking specifically of the fact that um glory appears to maintain her own i'm just going to use the word sanity she appears to maintain her own sanity her own clarity by by draining the (laughs) sanity the sanity from others so um i i I just uh, at this point in particular, I don't feel like there's been anything quote unquote problematic, but I, I, I don't know. Is this a thing? Do you feel like this storyline brushes up against being, um, I don't know, uh, unsympathetic or whatever? I don't know what word I'm looking for, but um, I don't think that Glory does specifically. Maybe some of her victims um, and, and especially in this episode, too. Buffy is very quick to look for a supernatural cause for her mother's sort of deteriorating condition. Mm-hmm. Um, and the show does not often deal with um, mental illness <clears throat> in a way that's not as if it is a supernatural cause. Um, but, you know, also like in that cultural moment, it wasn't as normalized or like as, talked about as it is now either um so yeah i don't know it i don't have a problem with it but it's also not really my area of study okay yeah see so <laughs> is I that a total cop out of an answer no 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 it's uh, it's uh i i don't have a problem with it either and i don't think no i i will say to the best of my recollection i have never in the past had any problem with the way that the glory storyline deals with you know, mental health or, or sanity or any of that stuff. Um, now I tend to be, I, I was going to say less sensitive, but uh, to avoid uh, insulting anybody, I will say uh, I'm less perhaps um, aware or educated maybe. I don't know, but that stuff tends to not bother me as much as it does some people. But I just know that there there are people who nowadays um, don't even like in pop culture when someone uses the word crazy or um, like even I keep referring to glory as the mad God, which is a, just a thing I say. I don't actually remember if that's even like if the show ever gives her that name. I don't know if they refer to her as the mad God, but just in my notes, I wrote mad God glory, but um, I, I'm sure there are people that would be bothered by my using the word mad as if to imply um, you know, that her, that her insanity or her mental health is damaged. I don't know. This is one of those things where I can't really parse, uh, if this is a, an issue of problematic inclusion or, or, or if it's just a non-issue, but, um, yeah. And, and I, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I don't know if it's just one of my ableist blind spots, um, mm-hmm. which to even say blind spot is also ableist. Um, so, see, it's so difficult. It, I, I know that it's not something that I've, um, have a, a good friend who's a disability scholar and she will point out to me, Hey, the thing you just said was very ableist. I'm like, 
oh, cool. Yeah, let me not say that again. Um, so it's a, a lacuna in sort of my scholastic approach to things. Yeah. Um, I'm much more concerned about like gender and sexuality and representation. So. All right. Well, let's talk about that in this episode then. Was there anything in this episode that, uh, that touched on that? Uh, not really. Um, you know, some people are, are, I know that people have criticized, well, the word bitch has become problematic, right? When, right. Uh, spikes out for a walk, bitch. Um, which is just delivered so well. It is. And um, so I, I'm not usually, man, just every word out of my mouth gets me in, potentially gets me into trouble with somebody, but I don't, uh, I'm not typically bothered by this kind of stuff. Um, but even me, like out for a walk, bitch is one of my favorite lines. It's one of my favorite spike. quotes. I just, uh, and when I realized, oh my God, this is the episode that gives us that line. Again, another thing that I, for some reason thought came later. Yeah, as it was I, ramping up to him delivering that line, even I was thinking, "Oh, is it going to be weird when he punctuates that last word and says bitch? Is that going to be weird?" And then it happened, so and I was like, "No, it was great. It was great." Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I am not the best at stepping gingerly around these issues. Okay. <laughs> well, let's let's move on because neither am I. So we're just we're not doing ourselves any favors. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about the um, uh, my perception at this point in the show, um, this this the early phases of season five. I feel like the series has been kind of increasingly moving away from the the MOTW, the metaphor of the week episodes (laughs) um, in favor of like an ever deepening sort of show specific mythology. I feel like the first um, particularly two, but I will say two or three seasons focused a lot more on um like the the monster of the week was always some sort of metaphor for something and as the show progresses and builds up more and more of its own sort of history and mythology it's been moving further away from that um which is fine I, i'm i'm not complaining about that necessarily but um it, it is a little bit hard for me to ignore uh, and this isn't a dig again but it's a little bit hard for me to ignore the metaphor of the whole younger sibling being introduced as a stand-in for an evil demon trying to destroy your happy family. <laughs> um, like I know, again, there's a larger story they're trying to tell with the character of Dawn, and it, it, it's a show-specific, mythology-specific story they're trying to tell. But also, clearly, the way they decided to... F- tell this story using a younger sister especially the fact that they make the younger sister so intentionally annoying Um, yeah and this episode really uh leans into that mm -hmm. Uh, you have the moment in the magic shop where she tells riley that buffy said she he couldn't go on patrol anymore because she thinks of him as kidney and delicate (laughs) right right. and you're just like stop talking dawn (laughs) so um Two of my favorite things that come out of this episode, well, I'll, I'll save one of them because it's the very end, but but um, they are, they're dawn scenes, um, and one of them is the misdirect, um, where uh, 
Buffy has just become, she's done the whole, okay, hang on, back up a little bit. The trance scene or whatever, it's weird right. that they didn't get Willow involved in that. That's Willow's, that's kind of Willow's thing. Right? It's weird <laughs> that it had to be Buffy by herself. But anyways, the whole way that was shot, the way that was done was beautiful. Yeah. Um, but then, so when she's in this sort of altered state and she becomes suspicious of Dawn and she thinks she's figured out what's going on, I, this is the thing that is not unique to this show. Like a lot of genre shows do this kind of thing, but this show has done many, many times where they do a deliberate misdirect, where they have a character act in a seemingly sinister way. <laughs> um, and in hindsight, you realize that it was all completely innocent and you were just... Your, your own prejudices were getting ahead of you. Oh, like um, Don with the T? Yes, um, yeah. I I've, made it for you. <laughs> yeah, but see, here's the thing. Sometimes that is super clumsy. Like, sometimes they do that, and it's, you know, I kind of roll my eyes, and I'm like, oh, they're really, they're really they're... playing this super hard for us to think this is a bad guy, and clearly it's not. But, if, I don't know, I really liked, um, I'm going to say it's Michelle Trachtenberg's Trachtenberg's performance because I she doesn't get enough credit for her performance as this unloved character of Dawn but um, <laughs> I, I quite liked the way they played the whole misdirect with her behavior coming off as being super sinister yeah because we we know something's off and we're trying to figure it out um, but they do like they they offer that up awfully easily mm -hmm. <laughs> you think I care you're the slayer I mean just yeah I I I suppose if I try to analyze it too deeply, I could fall into my own habit of saying, yeah, that was kind of obvious, but I, I really liked it. <laughs> I liked the way that played out. Yeah. And then of course we finally get an explanation for Dawn, yes. um, yeah. which, you know, we're five episodes into the season. And we finally <laughs> know from whence this character sprung. Okay. So you think that's a finally that we finally know. Um, again, I feel like that's super quick and, uh, I'm sure it's just because I'm coming off of analyzing season four and there was so much pacing, like the, the first two thirds of season four, just drug and drug. I feel like <laughs> they drug their feet and then they rushed through stuff at the very end of the season. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Like, you know, and part of that is colored by my memory of watching it, you know, back in the old days when you had to watch things a week at a time right. and you had like a week to, so this was like, more than a month before I got an explanation for this character that mysteriously appears in the season premiere. True. True. That's so, fair. It felt long at the time. That's, that's totally fair. Um, I wish to God I could remember what my, uh, my first impressions of were Don, uh, of Don were, uh, but I just, I don't remember my, my enduring memories of watching the show the first time had more to do with my interaction with other fans, which is embarrassing for me to say, but I guess I'm lucky in a way because when I was watching it initially, uh, I did so in a vacuum mm -hmm. uh, because I didn't have any friends who really watched Buffy. Um, I like I had a couple, but we weren't geographically close. So there wasn't a whole lot of like hashing it out. Right. Well, God bless you. <laughs> I know. I'm that's the gift of being old, Paul. I, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh man. Let's, let's not go there. Let's not go down that road. Um, um, let's see, where was I going with this? Um, yeah. So the reveal of what Don is, um, that's another thing that seems to be, I, I want to get your take on if there's any confusion over how the monks 
sort of created Dawn. And if you remember the show getting um, more specific than it has at this point, it probably does. But I can't remember if the show makes more of an effort to explain exactly what Dawn is and how she was created. But at this point, um, reading sort of reviews and reactions, uh, contemporary reviews and reactions from when the show aired, a lot of people seem to struggle with um, trying to figure out how the spell that created Dawn worked. Yeah, um, that's one of those things that I don't have a problem kind of hand-waving, um, because magic. Uh, exactly. So, exactly. Um, that didn't particularly bother me. I mean, they give us the scene of, you know, two months previously, uh, the monks, you know, you know they're up to something. They're chanting and sending some energy somewhere, so... Um, well, I mean, I think it's just I know, like, I don't get hung up on the. Yeah. So details of that, I, um, I, I, I know they do research about kind of who glory is and like what the key does, but mm-hmm. I don't know that we get like more of an explanation of how they created her, but I think it's really important that he tells her that now she's human. Yeah, no, that that's, she's an innocent. I, I loved that. So that, that whole thing leads into like my favorite part of the episode, which is the, the denouement, the quiet moments with Dawn at the end. But like before we head into that, the, the confusion over how Dawn was created in the first place, it, it, it's particularly surprising to me how many people struggled with that seem to have struggled with that. Um, when it comes so soon after superstar, which featured a similar kind of reality altering spell. Yeah, exactly. And, um, my understanding of Jonathan's whole spell was that like, he didn't sit down and specifically write the text of what the spell was going to do. And this is what Buffy is going to think about me. And this is my history with her. And Willow knows me as this or whatever. He had a desire and the magic figured it out for him. And I feel like that's the exact same thing here. The, the monks uh, have a, a, an end point that they're trying to get to. Like they, they, have a desired result and the magic just fills in the gaps, fills in the blanks for them. Yeah. And the one thing I'm not sure about, I don't know if they sought out sending her to the slayer or if they just wanted the key in a safe place. Well, he, the monks, the monk says that they knew the slayer would protect the key. So I feel like they probably, they, they were aware that the slayer existed. Now the question is, do they know who the slayer was? Cause I don't think I, I'm not a hundred percent sure if we're supposed to think that the monks that we saw the two months earlier, if those monks were in Sunnydale or if they were yeah. somewhere else, but uh, um, they may have just known that about the slayers and there's a slayer out there somewhere. And the slayer is the one that would protect the key. But um, so I don't necessarily know if they did research on Buffy Summers <laughs> specifically, but anyways, it just, I mean, you know, the perfect place to, to put the key is on top of a hell mouth. That's... Right. Right. Logical. Yeah. Makes total (laughs) sense. Makes total sense. Anyways, but exactly what you said, uh, I hand wave it away as magic and, (laughs) and particularly in this show, which has so often set up things like this show is not known for its uh, logistical details and continuity. Like vampire biology is whatever the heck it needs to be from one episode to the next, sometimes from one scene to the next magic (laughs) is the same thing. They, they, you need something weird to happen. It's magic. That's all you need to know. But anyways um so yeah. yeah i do i do love that um 
last scene with Dawn. Yeah. Because you see Buffy like being kind um, and understanding a little bit more about, you know, she is an innocent person. Um, and I, I love when Dawn just kind of tells, he calls her a butthole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's such a good 14 year old insult. <laughs> yeah. Her whole speech about like, I sometimes imagine that mother adopted you from a box of howler monkeys or whatever she says. That's, that's hilarious. But now that whole scene, um, does something that, um, this show, I'm super emotional. I'm very, I'm very secure in my masculinity. I'm very in touch with my emotions. Uh, pop culture can often bring me to tears. Um, that's what it's for. Right. Uh, Buffy does, doesn't do that very often. Certainly not now that I'm so jaded and have seen it so much, but, um, I was surprised. I caught myself at the end there, the, the moments between Buffy and Dawn with Buffy's new knowledge, um, was particularly poignant to me. And I, and I, I choked up. Yeah. Well, it's also the first moment we see Buffy be kind to Dawn really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find that to be a nice moment. Um, I'm sorry, my cat. I, is... I was going to say, I'm guessing your cat's not hiding under the bed anymore. <laughs> stop stop you can deal deal with him if you need to it's fine he quit he is fine (laughs) poor cats all they want is attention i know i I feel them i feel them (laughs) my cat is sitting five feet away from me sulking right now because i won't pay attention to her (laughs) um all right well what else did we get uh, Buffy calls Spike William in this episode, which Ooh, burn. I, I feel like is that the first time that she's ever referred to him as William? Maybe. Um, and I don't have the uh, like eidetic memory that some people do for the first instance of everything in the series. Um, but it it might be, um, and it's a really nice sort of way to just tell him that she's fed up with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I love his, his insults, uh, particularly when he says, and you have stupid hair, which uh, is his go-to insult for people, isn't it? Well, but it also contradicts what he said directly in the previous episode where he's talking about how he hates her and her, um, shiny shampoo commercial hair. Oh, I uh, forgot. I forgot that. So it's like a nice, uh, <laughs> a nice, and had I not watched these back to back, um, for this, I probably wouldn't have caught it, but it's like a nice little continuity thread. He's just like trying to disavow everything he said before realizing, oh no, I'm in love with her. That's a that's a good call. I didn't uh, catch that. I was I immediately just thought of his um, the various times that he has insulted Angel by talking about his stupid hair. Like <laughs> that, like insulting someone's hair seems to be a go to for Spike. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and for. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're fine. You're fine. For a vampire who spends a lot of time with his, uh, I mean, like, does his hair grow? Because it's longer sometimes. 
So does he constantly re-bleach it as a vampire? Like... I, I mean, see my earlier comment about this show doesn't care about the logistics of uh, vampire biology. Right. But I assume, uh, you know, especially because we see him historically, it's not the same color. Right. Um, so I assume Spike is a, a fella who is, you know, thinks about hair a lot. Yeah. So. He's 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 a bottle blonde. Yeah. It seems in character for him to complain about that. Oh, that poor cat. I'm sorry. Stop, kitty. His name is Cumberbatch, and he's very needy. Nice. Nice. Oh. So yeah, anyway. Um, we also get, like, more capable uh, Xander. Um, sort of being an adult and... You know, it's just it's just nice. It's a nice respite bef- from sort of let's beat up on Xander. Yeah, it, um, the people he'll get beat up on again. <laughs> undoubtedly. Yeah. Um. I do. We ever find out? Um. Why the heck the Dagon Sphere was just lying in the damn parking lot? Um. I think that the. Uh the vampire she dusts at the top of the episode, the the one who was pulled directly from central biker casting. Yeah. Uh, I think he had it. Yeah. That was the only thing I could think of, but why did he have it? Like that where, where did he Excellent get it? and unexplained question. <laughs> okay. So, so I'm trying to follow this. I think, so that warehouse that, uh, that the security guard shoot her away from where, where they found yeah. the Dagon sphere. That's where glory uh, actually, actually, I don't think Glory was there yet because we see her after that is when she kicks in the door and finds that one, the one monk hiding there. But the monk is in there, right? And presumably the monk has the Dagon Sphere. And the Dagon Sphere, we eventually will learn is, well, I mean, Giles tells us it's meant to, it's a defense against he, it who should not be named or whatever, the evil <laughs> that should not be named. Voldemort. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Um, now, see, I think of it in Lovecraftian terms because Dagon is a god from the the Cthulhu mythos, um, <laughs> and and there is a god in the Cthulhu mythos that uh, he who should not be named. But um, I've seen other people say that they must have been uh, Harry Potter fans. <laughs> uh, but anyways, so w- what I'm wondering is the the monk is holed up in this abandoned warehouse or whatever, and he's got the Dagon sphere, and then. Well, no, because Glory hadn't shown up at that point. Never mind. I was going to say Glory shows up and throws the Dagon Sphere away, and that's and that's how it ends up in the parking lot. But Glory's not there yet. Never mind. I talked myself yeah. out of that whole fan wank. Because the first the first inkling we get that Glory has shown up at that warehouse is when Buffy sees the security guard in the emergency room. Right, right. Which was which clearly was after he found the Dagon Sphere. Right. Who knows? So what you're telling me is you don't. Re- there's no scene that you remember where someone says explains why the Dagon Sphere was just coincidentally hanging out in the parking lot when Buffy was there. I don't think so. Okay, um, that's fine. Yeah, maybe maybe the monk dropped it when he was you know running. You know, monk robes. The pockets are loose. Yeah. So yeah. Could have fallen out. Sure. Sure, <laughs> I can see it. I didn't see him with a purse, so. Um, it's a man bag. Come on. <laughs> a European carry-all. A satchel. A satchel. <laughs> um, all right. Is there I any... love the first time that Buffy meets 
um, or well, no, the first time we see Glory when she's torturing the monk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I wrote this down. I was like, she, she tells him, speak American. Right. Yeah, we're in the new <laughs> world like, now. <laughs> oh, that's a, huh, speak American, not English. <laughs> <laughs> that feels awfully timely for a show written in, you know, probably 1999. Right. So there's some interesting parallels between, and, and these we'll get much more into these as the season goes on, but uh, some parallels between um, Glory and Buffy, where both of them uh, have lines. Well, Buffy has always had lines. Again, I, I love you, Buffy, but man, you get under my skin. <laughs> Buffy has always <laughs> had lines about, uh, I didn't ask for this, and uh, you know, I was chosen, I didn't choose, or whatever. And uh, she's back to that in this episode specifically. I mean, she even has the line to the the monk where she's he's saying, you know, the slayer will protect the key. And she's like, I didn't, you know, I didn't choose to do that or whatever. That wasn't my choice. Or I didn't ask for this, I think is what she says. Yeah. Um, and uh, Glory is saying the same thing. Now, Glory, this is a completely different context, but Glory's <laughs> whole first speech is about how you think I want to be doing this. I don't even I wasn't even supposed to be here today. <laughs> <laughs> You're on this mortal coil. Right. Uh, yeah. And and I think of the sort of big bads throughout the series, Glory is the best match for Buffy in terms of like returning a quip. I mean, the mayor is pretty good, um, but, you know, a little more dry. Yeah. <laughs> Glory is good at, at serving insults back. And... And she's just delightful to watch. She is. She is such a joy. Um, she is amazing for, for anyone who is listening along with this podcast and hasn't seen further in the series. Uh, you've got some good stuff ahead of you because Claire Kramer as glory is just a, a treasure. Um, and they do a great job. I know that season five, um, the stunt coordinator and, the stunt doubles. Uh, I don't know if all of them, but Sarah Michelle Gellar's stunt double uh, that had been, whose name I've been told multiple times and I can never remember. I apologize. Uh, that had been on the show for the first four seasons, they left. So season five has a new stunt coordinator and a new double for Buffy. Um, well, they got to work out in this episode. Yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say, I feel like the action sequences have been really, really good in this season. And um, it doesn't, the scene I'm thinking of right now doesn't necessarily involve a lot of fight choreography, although the fight between Buffy and Glory was fantastic. But I loved the way they did the scene. This is one of those little things, little details that sometimes annoy me, but in this case I loved, is when she's knocking down that gigantic metal door. <laughs> um, like, that was a practical effect. That was a real, it clearly it wasn't a six-inch thick steel door, but it, was, but it was a real physical thing that they were they were not punching on the other side and knocking down. And um, when it actually falls in uh, and you see Glory standing behind it, um, just watch that scene again. Like, rewind that scene and watch it again. And it, it convincingly looks like it is actually Claire Kramer. It probably is. Uh, is actually Claire Kramer standing on the other side of this gigantic prop door. And it looks like she has actually just thrown the punch that knocks the door down. (laughs) Um, It's a tiny little detail that sometimes like er even earlier in this episode, there was the scene where, uh, uh, Oh, it wasn't this episode. I'm sorry. It was the previous one where Buffy is jumping down off the top of the mausoleum. 
Oh yeah, to fight the vampires. Be... That was not Sarah Michelle Gellar. That was so not Sarah Michelle Gellar, and you could clearly see that. Um, yeah, and I had a moment too where, um, in the fight scene when Glory asks her, "Can you fly?" Mm-hmm. and she pushes her across the room, like as the the body rolls up and hits the ledge of the step. It's like that's not that's not Sarah Michelle Gellar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a brief second. Yeah. So because of little gaffes like that, because of the moments where the the sort of you you see behind the curtain and you realize oh of course it's not sarah michelle Gellar. they're not going to throw her into a wall <laughs> um it's the little moments like uh where it genuinely looks like uh claire kramer hit that prop door and that's what knocked it down little things like that impress me so yeah Anyways. um and season five generally looks good uh with the exception of the bad digital composite in uh out of my mind of the sunny of burnt down sunnydale high (laughs) um yeah that was the only effect that i was like ooh. (laughs) and and i i think that is the last time that we see sunnydale high yeah well uh, until until, i guess they go back to it in season seven but i'm not sure that we actually see the school i don't know i maybe i'm talking out my rear end i don't know what i'm saying so they don't they don't raise it and build a new school on it, do they? I maybe. I can't remember actually. Maybe is that is that the basement they go into that that like Andrew goes into? I can't remember now. Huh. All all I can say is the the burned out husk of Sunnydale High has been just sitting there ignored for an awful long time. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty gross. Um, so you know, and, and it gives lots of like. You know, if if they just invested in some bulldozers, there'd be many le- fewer places for bad guys to hang out. Right. That's all I'm saying. A little a little infrastructure could go a long way to cleaning the town up. Get rid of <laughs> get rid of some of those vampire nests. Yeah. I guess if you know your tax base is consistently eaten, then <laughs> it's hard to you know take care of those municipal projects like that. Yeah. Um, all right. Anything else? Uh, I feel like we've probably covered it. Uh, Ben got a great radioactive spider bite quote, which anytime there's a shout out to (laughs) Spider-Man, I I think that's always good, but yeah. Um, I, you know, it's, it's a well done episode, uh, in Buffy's. (laughs) I, I do like that Willow is empathetic toward dawn because she says dawn is such a spaz yeah which which is significant possibly significant for two reasons one it's a great line because it just reminds us that you know that willow used to be her yeah you know that used to be willow or at least that's how willow viewed herself um and so it makes sense that she would sort of empathize with dawn but then the way she what she actually says is i'm I'm feeling this involunt lots of involuntary empathy, um, <laughs> which in hindsight, once it's revealed that the monks created Dawn and implanted all of these memories, yeah, that empathy you're feeling is like actually involuntary because it was forced on you. <laughs> yeah. And then the only other note that I have uh, lines that I love uh, when Giles is freaking out that the magic shop is busy. <laughs> Oh yeah, Xander's advice: just stay British. You'll be okay. <laughs> yes, that's great. Oh, that's great. That whole sort of subplot with the magic box uh, was a nice, um, 
like like I was saying, the show has moved a little more away from sort of the metho- the, the the metaphor of the week things, and has moved on to sort of a larger, consistent mythology. Yeah, it's um, it's getting better at world building. Right. Uh, um, an- another thing that I feel like it doesn't do as often anymore, and so this was nice was have a like a legitimate B plot that's going on. Yeah. Uh, well, and the... it, like as the show goes on, you know, it, it's easy to get away from metaphor of the week when you get away from monster of the week, right? Because right. monsters are metaphors. So right. when yeah, you that... have this villain you don't understand, you can't attach a metaphor to it yet. Right. Fair enough. But yeah, the, the magic box B plot was, was fun and refreshing. <laughs> and it's nice to see Anya gainfully employed. Yes. I have his money. Why do I care what kind of day he has? <laughs> Just embrace it. <laughs> oh, speak truth, Anya. Speak truth. And and Anya is being surprisingly helpful, you know, with her knowledge about the spell for Buffy to like see the magic residue. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we forget, I think, that Anya has like a wealth of knowledge, and sometimes she just chimes in with a real winner. Yeah, um, I'm going to, before much longer, I'm going to have to refresh my memory on what the uh, Anya essay that was presented at um, Slayage, at this past Slayage was. Um, were you in that one? Did you go to that one? I don't think so. Okay, yeah. I, I, I keep referencing it offhand in these episodes, and, and it's not fair to the person who gave the paper, because uh, it was fantastic, and um, it was... It, it was something that really, really made me sort of feel the love for Anya more than I ever really did. I never, I never disliked Anya, but she just wasn't, <laughs> I didn't think that much about Anya and, and someone at Slayage gave a fantastic paper on Anya and her, her arc across the series. Slayage is so tough because it just presents you with a series of impossible choices. Right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. Every time I go, I'm like, wait, my, my wife and I sit down for weeks in advance and try to schedule, all right, we're going to see this one and then we'll, we'll <laughs> run across the hall and see that. Yeah. Yeah. It really distills your sense of FOMO. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I don't, I don't think I had anything more to say about these episodes. Um, they, they were both great. Um, we got very, very, very little Terra in these two episodes, but I suppose that'll be made up for next week when we get a a Terra focused episode. Yeah. Um, and these are, you know, they're early in the season. They're still laying groundwork. Um, and of course we, the, the season premieres are pretty much always throwaways. <laughs> yeah, which is, which is a trope uh, that I had not previously, I guess, acknowledged or, or really been consciously aware of, but has been pointed out to me a few times recently that the season openers are always the, the weak points in the series. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Um, so thank you for joining yeah. me and for, for uh, <laughs> enduring your cat's torment while we record. Absolutely my pleasure. And apparently his too, because he's now curled up on my foot. Oh, of course. <laughs> the episode's over, so he's done his part. <laughs> right, right. He's exhausted. He wore himself out. So God bless you, Cumberbatch. <laughs> um, and thank you at home for listening. Uh, well, I guess... I should give you an opportunity to pimp anything um, 
do you have any social media you want people to be aware of or, or any other things that I didn't mention at the top of the show? Um, I'm on Twitter. My, uh, handle, is that what we call them? Like it's ZB radio. Yeah. Uh, is, uh, at Painsthe, P-A-I-N-S-T-H-E-E. Um, which is an anagram of Stephanie. So <laughs> everybody's oh. like, Oh, you're so goth. I'm like, no, it literally is just an anagram of my name. I feel like you must have pointed that out to me last time I had you on the show and I completely forgot. So it was a revelation <laughs> once again. I'm like, oh, that makes total sense. Everybody always like just thinks I'm being overdramatic until I explain it. So <laughs> it, it takes my extraness down a notch if I tell people why. <laughs> um, okay. Um, and then uh, I'll include links to... Well, at least I know there's a link for the the book that's out, uh, the Joss Whedon versus horror, um, edited by the excellent Lorna Jowett and Chris Wifter. Oh, the the newly elected president and oh oh man, what is Wifter's position? Is he vice? He's president? VP. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the newly elected president and vice president of uh, the Slayer, of uh, the Whedon Studies Association. Yeah, so I'll shabby scholars either. Oh yeah, I'm, I mean, they're amazing. <laughs> they're am- I am intimidated. I love Jorna, uh, Lorna. I love Lorna, but uh, I'm always intimidated. Like every time I go to Slay Edge, I somehow manage to find probably because I'm a huge Angel fan, and uh, and, um, and that's her bailiwick. <laughs> yeah, she's an Angel fan as well. So I, I always kind of gravitate towards her, and then I always feel like super intimidated. Like I really. <laughs> I really don't belong in the, those circles, but I always want to hang out with those people. So that that is my mo. Essentially, I don't belong here, but I'm going to force you to be around me. So. <laughs> Man, that's what podcasts are for. <laughs> um, so uh, thank you again for joining me, and uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Yeah, and um, I'll you'll be back. I'll have you back. Excellent. Uh, and thank you at home for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, uh, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, if you do that, please rate us or write us a review. Help us stand out from the crowd. Um, and if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything that we've talked about, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on the Facebook group, uh, conversations with conversations with dead people. I just have to use that word as often as I possibly can to maintain my, my copyright on it, I guess. Um, next week I, and presumably a guest, uh, who I get, I suppose are going to remain nameless, uh, since I can't get a confirmation from anyone yet, but, uh, I at least will be discussing episodes 506 family and a big one for me personally, 507 fool for love. So, Yeah, I'm, I cannot wait for that one. Uh, until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Attention to the man who'll try to change you. He's a dark, familiar stranger. But that's the danger. The storm is strong, but it won't be long. And no matter where you roam, there's no place like.